always get what you want But if you try sometimes You might find You get what you need Welcome. I'm John LaBelle, your host. This is Visionaries. We're here on PRN.FM. Every Monday at 10 a.m. New York time, but you might be anywhere in the world, so it could be any other time, but we're 10 a.m. New York time. And you can find our back shows at visionaries.podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N is nancy.com. And lots of interesting back shows, one of them with a guest, John David Ebert, whom we have on again today. So, John, you there? Hello, John? Yes, I'm here. Great. So, uh, Ebert is a, uh, what's the term, public intellectual? Yeah, more or cultural critic, I guess. Cultural Either critic, one. great. And, I guess uh, the public intellectual is dead, so oh, okay. I would be a cultural critic then cultural in that critic. case. Cool. <laughs> so, uh, first of all, uh, I'm going to suggest to my guests they go to Amazon and put in John David Ebert and his like a dozen books. So we'll talk about some of those uh, really great reads. And then go to cinemadiscourse.com. We've not been updating that recently, but you'll find some back movie reviews and some essays by John on the um, uh, classic movies. Then go to culturaldiscourse.com, find a bunch of his essays. And, John, where do they find your lectures and uh, podcasts and stuff like that? Uh, those can be found in two places. Either they can go to YouTube and just simply type in my full name, John David Ebert, or they can go to Google Play and type my full name into Google Play, and they will come up. There's a lot more of them on Google Play, uh, although there is a there is a a charge for them on Google Play, although I've tried to keep the prices low, but um, most of them are free on YouTube. So, John, let's, before we talk about today's topic, I wanted to talk to John today about, how should we say it, uh, French postmodern uh, thinkers. But before we do that, uh, could you tell our listeners what are, you would say, your most representative books that they should, if they're going to get into John David Ebert, that they might start with? Sure. Uh, I have four that are probably the ones that are the most popular and most representative of my thinking. And those include uh, Dead Celebrities Living Icons uh, and The New Media Invasion and then The Age of Catastrophe and Art After Metaphysics. Those tend to be my four most popular, the ones that people like the most. Cool. And Tell them about the scene-by-scene series. Yes, and then there's also uh, a a series where I've put out um, monographs on individual movies such as Blade Runner and Alien, and each one is a scene-by-scene analysis. So it would be Blade Runner scene-by-scene, for instance, in which I would go through the movie scene-by-scene, following the the time clock, literally, and um, walk the... It's the equivalent of doing a DVD commentary, except doing it in print instead of recording it uh, as a side commentary. Um, And so there's Blade Runner, I've done Alien, and The Shining, and Star Wars, uh, and a couple of others, but those are the the main ones, Apocalypse Now. Great. And so forth. One more thing. One of of my favorite 
of your books is Dead Celebrities. So tell us a little bit about that one. There's just such beautiful writing. And when you get to people like Marilyn Monroe, you know, to sort of get into what this person was really about. So tell us about that book. Yes, Dead Celebrities uh, Living Icons is... um was a book that I wrote way back in, I think it was uh, 2008 um, or thereabouts, about the cult and culture associated with uh, the whole phenomenon of the celebrity who lives the tragic life. And back then, I think Heath Ledger had just died or had, was about to, and then Michael Jackson not too long after that. So the book seemed, um, it seemed interesting and timely to pull out an analysis of the sort of architecture of the celebrity's life, especially as um, I see the kind of uh, hyper-real celebrity that our culture has generated today as something that is a byproduct of the individual's interface with electronic technology or electric technology as it began back in the 50s with televised televisual figures and cinematic figures such as James Dean, Marilyn Monroe, and Elvis Presley. Um, JFK was the first televisual president and so forth. And these tragic things that happened to each one of these individuals, and normally there would be a death uh, scenario. Uh, there would either be a death by drug overdose or uh, death by uh, car crash, as in the case of James Dean, or death by uh, murder through a celebrity stalker, as in the case of John, uh, John Lennon and, and uh, the attack on Andy Warhol that was almost successful but failed uh, by Valerie Solanas. Um, And there's a whole syndrome that's associated with this whereby the celebrity generates avatars, electric clones of themselves, and these clones tend to take on their own kind of life. They become iconic, and it's almost as though they have an autonomy about them that's sort of like the Jungian archetypes. And they begin to sort of dictate back to the individual's life. They sort of leech the life out of the individual who generated them, and then they attract into the orbit of the individual potentially unstable personalities who mistake the avatar for the real individual. And this creates all kinds of... So there are the individuals who are attracted by the avatar, and then there's the initial celebrity himself or herself who may be destabilized by the feedback of the avatar into the celebrity sense of their self their selfhood. Um, And it becomes very confusing and ontologically disorienting and destabilizing. And I see all of that as the forerunner for the culture that we're living in today, where all of this is now democratized through social media, through Twitter and YouTube and so forth. It's available to everyone. So everyone can miniaturize this uh, cult and culture of the archetype of the celebrity who accelerates him or herself to light speed and participate in it and experience the tragic consequences for themselves uh, at the level of just the ordinary individual. Wow. So, yeah, John, I gather you have uh, all kinds of uh, followers of your amazing online lectures, and I guess some people have created a, a whatever, <laughs> their own image of you. Yes. Yes, it has happened, and I've experienced the consequences of uh, uh, my own small, modest form of fame. Uh, yeah, I've definitely experienced it uh, wow. firsthand. But, but yeah. one of the beautiful things about the book is, the, particularly in the case of your portrait of Marilyn Monroe, is the conflict between Marilyn Monroe and Norma Jean. In other words, that they're, they're these, they pull apart as two separate things, and then there's... Uh, uh, a conflict and maybe even life and death struggle between the two. 
if that's right. I mean, uh, Norma Jean Baker was the real name of Marilyn Monroe, Marilyn Monroe being her screen name that she generated for herself. Uh, but the, the shrinkage uh, in the personality of the real Marilyn Monroe, and the real Marilyn Monroe was a person who was uh, you know, very complex, as we all are. She liked to read and write. She liked to read poetry and books. She was very literate. And, but none of that uh, was part of her on-screen avatar, which was uh, this archetype, or rather stereotype, that she got caught by playing the ditzy dumb blonde in all of her films. And that stereotype uh, captured the imagination of America, but it also captured her into its orbit. And it really put a lot of pressure on her life and made her, I think, as time went by, more and more miserable. And she began to numb that misery uh, with a pill addiction and began taking sleeping pills, Nembutal, uh, and so forth, and had a fatal interaction one night between Nembutal and chlorohydrate, uh, which may have been a mistake, actually, on the part of her prescribing physician, the man who lived with her, um, a psychiatrist uh, who actually lived with her and prescribed uh, a chlorohydrate enema one night, and he did not know that another doctor had still put her on Nembutal, and the intermixture of those two drugs is fatal, and it seems to have been an accident, actually, rather than a suicide. Mm -hmm. uh, at least the evidence seems to point that way. I know there's a lot of... Uh, one of the things about this culture is that it, it's a myth-forming and myth-generating culture where it tends to activate people's imaginations, and they love to spin conspiracy theory scenarios that are these miniature myths in disguise, and the death of Marilyn Monroe uh, is one of those scenarios, as is the case with the Beatles uh, and the roomed uh, legends about the death of Paul McCartney in a car yeah. crash. Um, you know, all of this kind of myth formation that it tends to attract individuals. Um, there's always some sort of conspiracy involved, you know, with Michael Jackson and his physician, for for instance. We see the, a, a much later echo of what happened with Marilyn Monroe and hers. So, uh, interestingly, uh, I guess this does segue into today's topic because there's there's uh you know i'm i'm very interested in non-western cultures i teach a course in non-western architecture uh both uh, ebert and i were involved with joseph campbell who was uh, one of the more prodigious scholars of other cultures and they're one of the things if we when we really get into these other cultures and we avoid the uh, materialism of current books like Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel, that the what makes another a culture different or what makes a culture it, to a large extent is what is a self? What is a human being? What is a person? And we say, well, there's a biological person here who got here through the accidents of uh, natural selection and evolution, and it's going to live through a, uh, a certain lifespan, barring an accident like we've just been talking about of 70, maybe 80 years now, and uh, is going to have familial and, and social relations. But that's not, re you know, that uh, other cultures don't see it that way. And maybe our culture really doesn't either. And so when I was uh, intellectually coming of age, uh, I didn't get any black, I didn't get a black turtleneck, but you're supposed to get a black turtleneck and smoke Galois cigarettes and, and uh, read Jean-Paul Sartre. 
And right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right, and if you could make it, go to Le Du Mago, you know, and uh, right. sit at a table near the window, and that um, that genre, you know, Sartre, Camus, uh, and Merleau-Ponty, uh, has was replaced in the seventies, eighties, and nineties by a a uh, yet emerging group. I th- one of them is uh, Foucault, who sort of began his career being furious with Sartre's uh, essay and lecture, Existentialism is a Humanism. And so John has been um, immersed himself in reading these figures. And I thought you might have heard, you know, terms like Foucault and Deleuze and whatever. And I thought we'd take advantage of this uh, interview to resort to sort of review who these figures are. So, John, you wanted to start with Lacan. So who's Lacan and what does he tell us? Right. Lacan was sort of the forerunner of this whole development. He came to fame in the 1950s uh, before these guys did. All of these guys are a product of the 60s, uh, Foucault and uh, Deleuze and Guattari and uh, Jean Baudrillard and um, Derrida, those being the primary exponents of the, the whole movement. Um, but Lacan is, was a psychoanalyst uh, in France. He married Bataille's ex-wife at one point, and um, he was connected with the whole avant-garde culture of uh, Paris in the 50s. And he was a Freudian psychoanalyst and uh, probably the greatest of, of the Freudians. Uh, after I think I see Freud, Jung, and Lacan as probably the three greatest names in the history of uh, psychotherapy. Uh, but uh, Lacan was very much opposed to the Jungian way of doing things, and Lacan is also the first. And the reason, I think, to get to the point, the reason that he's the forerunner of this whole group was because of his importation of linguistic theory, uh, specifically the theories of Ferdinand de Saussure, uh, with his course in general linguistics that Lacan was really the first uh, in French thought to read and import and bring it in and begin to synthesize it. And it eventually spirals into a whole theory of the unconscious, which Lacan insists is structured like a language. And in a certain sense, neuroses and psychoses, especially neuroses, are generated from words that get interjected into the psyche. You put in the word and out comes the symptom. And the words cause, uh, they get stuck. Uh, Things that your parents might have said to you, things that you might have heard in advertising or read somewhere, these are all signifiers that get stuck in the psyche and they can cause neuroses. So this is very different from Freud where uh, in Freud most of what happens with the creation of a personal biographical unconscious is the result of traumatic life events. But for Lacan, the things that become repressed into the psyche tend to actually to be words. And so he took this theory of neuroses being generated by words uh, to become the basis for his whole theory of psychoanalysis. And so uh, psychotherapy largely consists in exploring specifically free association, getting the individual to talk, getting them to make associations between what he called chains of signifiers. Uh, And a signifier from, I suppose I should define from Saussure, uh, the word signifier, um, for Saussure, there are signs, and a sign is composed of both a signifier and a signified, and the signifier is simply an, what he calls an acoustic image. So it can be a word, but it can also be a pictorial image. Um, anything that we associate with as a, as a glyph of any kind is a signifier, and a signifier always refers to a signified, which is a concept or an idea of some sort that controls the meaning of the signifier. And so there's an intimate interrelationship 
relationship, though an arbitrary one, according to Saussure, between the signifier and the signified. And so this is the theory that uh, Lacan brought, imported into psychoanalysis, and then that began to become uh, the sort of start of what happens with French postmodernism. Interesting. Um, you know, uh, these figures, Lacan, Foucault, uh, Derrida, um, maybe 20 years ago, a student in any field could not write a thesis, PhD thesis, without references to these figures. It was, you know, it was, uh, oh, here it is. <laughs> and now yeah. that's faded away a little bit, but I'm seeing among my younger colleagues, so I teach a, a, a large survey course, and there are 10 of us in the uh, in the faculty doing the five doing each of two different semesters. And I see in my younger colleagues this, uh, what's going on contemporarily in scholarship, because they all have been just getting their PhDs. And while they may not refer to Foucault, they'll refer to the panopticon. So... Uh, Maybe the next figure we should talk about is Michel Foucault. So who is he, and what were his key ideas? Well, Michel Foucault uh, is a, generally regarded as a structuralist, uh, as is Lacan, I think, more or less. They're still within the structuralist vein. And uh, Foucault is really the first of these guys after Lacan. I think uh, his first big book is uh, A History of Madness, which was written, I believe, in 1960, if, if memory serves right. Um, but it's his fifth book, The Order of Things, that is the book that he is most associated with, and that I, I think is his best book, and it's the one for which he's the most famous. And The Order of Things came out in 1966, and it's a sort of structural analysis of what he calls the four great epistemes, uh, although he really only focuses on three of them. The fourth is, is just simply the postmodern age in which he's writing. Um, the, the great epistemes or structures of the knowledge formations of the West. And those four epistemes are essentially the first of them being the Renaissance and medieval episteme. And each one of these has its own structure. And that one is followed by the classical episteme, by which he specifically means the 17th and first half of the 18th centuries. That's the classical. Both of those are comprised under the sovereign age, the, the age of kings. Um, and the twilight work that announces the shift. Foucault has a kind of catastrophist theory that each one of these epochs uh, is generated suddenly, and he's not interested in saying why. He doesn't develop a theory of causality that uh, attributes it to shift in media the way McLuhan would do, let's say. Um, he's not interested in causes. He's just interested, uh, like a morphologist, a, a biologist describing the structure of an animal, just describing the organs that comprise each of these epochs. And so he sees uh, Don Quixote, for instance, announcing the shift between the medieval Renaissance episteme and the classical episteme of the 17th century, uh, both still being within the age of kings, though. And then the modern episteme, or the disciplinary society, uh, its sort of uh, catastrophe is the French Revolution. That signals the shift uh, with the death of the sovereign age, the end of kings, and the rise of the disciplinary society, whereby institutions such as the clinic and the prison and the hospital and the school become the governing uh, rules. The uh, rule formation comes from these institutions for the disciplinary age, which then lasts all the way down to, I think, World War II. And no, Foucault doesn't say this. I think World War II could be regarded as the catastrophe that signals the shift from the disciplinary society to uh, postmodern uh, contemporaneity. And so that's, those are, I mean, we can analyze the 
individual structures of each one of these epistemes if we'd like. But that's, I mean, that's the main upshot of Foucault, is the analysis of each one of these societies and the sort of a priori structures, or what he calls the discursive formations, the knowledge structures that underlie almost like um, a sort of, it's almost as though knowledge formations, what he calls discursive formations, and he makes a distinction between discursive formations and systems of visibility. Each one of these institutions, for instance, the prison, uh, the hospital, the school, is a system of visibility that organizes things in space, that the eye sees, that's visible. And, of course, the panopticon comes out of that. The panopticon is probably his most famous idea, and it has to do with the, the visibility of prisoners in a prison where they're in a paranoid environment that's constantly under observation. But the system of visibility uh, is a non-discursive formation, which generates a discursive formation, which is a system of articulability. And the system of articulability then uh, has its own, what he calls, archive. And an archive is simply the sum total of the knowledge formations of each one of these individual epochs. And these institutions, or within, let's say, the classical epoch of the 17th century, let's say the biologists, the linguist and the economist have much more in common with each other because they share the same sort of a priori knowledge structures. It's as though Foucault were excavating the knowledge unconscious, the unconscious structures that enable knowledge to be played within that epoch. They have a lot more in common with each other than the biologist of that epoch does, let's say, with Darwin, where Darwin's living in a completely different age and one that has different knowledge rules and a different episteme entirely. Um, but that's Foucault's game, and that's the, those are the main ideas, this idea that, that knowledge is embedded in systems of discursive formations that have a priori rules and structures that most people are unconscious of and that enables truth to articulate itself in a certain way in each one of these epochs. And it's a little bit... I mean, you can see the influence of Heidegger on Foucault in the sense that Heidegger had this idea that the history of being, for instance, has it, each, each epoch has its own understanding of being. Uh, the Greeks had a different understanding of what it means for something to be and to be true uh, than was the case in the medieval world or uh, in the case of the 17th century or in the case of uh, you know, today's understanding of being as in framing, as technological in framing, whereas being, let's say, for the age of uh, the Greek pre-Socratics prior to Plato, being was phusis, and phusis was simply the arising and flashing forth of entities. They simply arose and flashed forth, and transcendence was imminent within them. Whereas for Plato, transcendence becomes separate from imminence, and for Plato, Plato, uh, you know, the typical way for Heidegger, uh, the, the typical way in which knowledge in the West is shown is that Plato represents a kind of climax, uh, a grand sy synthesis of the pre-Socratics, but for Heidegger, he represents a completely different epoch in the beginnings of the degeneration of philosophy with the divorce of being from becoming, so that being just becomes identified with these transcendent forms, these ultimate transcendental signifies or archetypes, the forms, the ideas, and the world of physical materiality is the world of becoming, and it's a fallen world. It's a world that uh, is fallen, as it was not for the pre-Socratics. The, the physical world was a world of imminence and revelation, but for Plato it becomes fallen. And so there's two different ideas of being even there within the Greeks. We might say that those are two different epistemes. And so you can see the influence of Heidegger on Foucault this way, I think. Wow. Fantastic. So let me, let me um, describe an impression about Foucault, and you can correct me and see if I don't get it quite right. And there's a, a tendency in much of 
Western culture, particularly, let's say, in the sciences, to see the Enlightenment as an objective, natural development that, well, of course, in other words, that we should respect individual uh, human beings and that we can have an objective attack on knowledge. And when someone like Foucault comes along and says, no, this, this Enlightenment period is not the way of uh, approaching the world. It's historically a way of approaching the world. And it, has, it can be characterized, and not all of it is always pleasant, such as uh, the discipline that he talks about. And he says that our things like the mental hospital, which is, uh, you know, we tell ourselves is to help the mentally ill, is actually trying to force them into um, normal behavior, or what we call normal behavior, and in its own way is as ugly as medieval torture. And this gets uh, really picked up on by the academics and intellectuals in the 70s and 80s, and to a point where uh, there's a dis- almost a dismissal of the Enlightenment. And later, toward the end of his life, Foucault says, Let's not be so quick to dismiss the Enlightenment. There's a, we're, there are a lot of bad things that we could fall into if we do that. So tell me if that's the way you read it. Yeah, that's about right. I, I would say that uh, Foucault isn't trying to give any kind of uh, value judgments for each of these epochs. I think for him, each one of them uh, is a perfectly good, consistent understanding of nature and the world and subjectivity and so forth. Um, as any of the others. I don't, I don't see him privileging any of these four world ages at all. Um, I think that he tends to talk the most about the disciplinary society, the third of these epochs. That's the one that he tends to be the most fascinated with, the, the age of the rise of institutions, impersonal institutions and their knowledge formations, the kind of uh, discursive formations that emerged within that age. And that's the age of, uh, you know, the formation of encyclopedias and uh, the, the organization of knowledge on a high level begins during that age and it's institutions that begin to generate ideas of human subjectivity and what it means to be a self what it means to be a subjectivity within that age is something that um, is embedded within the institutions the institutions create the sense of I-ness uh, by keeping track of the individual and inscribing him into the social order and that becomes a way of creating subjectivity for as far as Foucault was concerned because <clears throat> Foucault was uh, very much interested in sort of dismantling the subject this is one of the things I think that characterizes the episteme of post-modernity that he shares in common with Derrida and with Deleuze and Guattari which is a deprivileging of the subject of knowledge. And the subject is, this is why when you read Foucault, when you read The Order of Things, and he says this in the preface to the book, that he avoids discussion of the great men of science. He says too often the history of science gets relegated to a discussion of Newton and Linnaeus and Buffon and Cuvier and Goethe and Newton. It just tends to be associated with the great men. And you lose all these other knowledge formations, what he calls the micropolitics of knowledge, which uh, which is the reason why instead of talking about mathematics and physics and cosmology as his primary systems for understanding the knowledge formations in each of these epochs. He talks about the lesser knowledge systems, biology, linguistics, and economics, 
uh, because those fields tend not to be associated with big names, other than Darwin, of course, for biology. But they tend to be associated less with the micropolitics, but the smaller scale knowledge formations. For Foucault, the subject is embedded in uh, what Deleuze calls a, a, uh, a collective assemblage of enunciation, in which everyone within that assemblage, uh, the, the assemblage itself produces knowledge. And so you get Foucault writing, you know, it was known in this epoch that, rather than saying uh, Newton's theory was this and that and the other thing. And, and so there's a shift here in a deprivileging of subjectivity, and I think that's one of the main ways in which with these kinds of knowledge histories, you get something that's very different from what you're going to get uh, in reading, let's say, Lewis Mumford or Daniel Borstein or Joseph Campbell. It's not going to be the great man theory. It's, it's going to be a, a very different kind of taking care of and looking at the small-scale uh, micromolecular formations of knowledge, what, what Deleuze would call micromolecular, um, or Foucault would call micropolitical. Um, you know, when you, you talk about changing attitudes toward the subject, and uh, reminds me of uh, the following, a little digression here, but it's something I've thought about in looking at other cultures, and it's something that we have to be aware of in academia today with the collapse of American, uh, except for some elite suburban ones, the collapse of American high schools, American colleges are looking abroad for students, and literally 20% of the students in my school are Chinese. And this is not, you know, Chinese-Americans. These are people from China. And they—so we're importing our students now. And they tend to be very capable. They actually go to— uh, high schools in English. In other words, they do all their high schooling in English, so they're not struggling with English. But we are discovering very different attitudes toward the self. And <clears throat> I have to be careful in how I talk about this because there's a lot of politics around it. But someone else wrote a book, and I think the title is The Girl at the Baggage Claim. And it's about a university that accepted, uh, I don't know, a Chinese student who was a superstar at lacrosse. And they go to meet her at the baggage claim at the airport, and they're looking at her. This doesn't look right. And it turns out she had submitted her sister's, uh, um, you know, athletic record. And right. And and the, then, and the book is about how does this come about. And the point it makes is they know it's wrong, but whatever that means. But it's like we know that speeding is wrong, but how often do you go 70 miles an hour in a 65-mile-an-hour zone? You do it all the time. Right. And, yeah. yeah, if you get caught, you're not going to object. Yeah, I was going five miles an hour over the speed. But you don't think of it as a cardinal sin. And so that's the, you know, the Chinese sense of the self is, there's myself, other people's selves. You can get them mixed up a little. It's not the end of the world. And, right. right. Yeah, the self is more of a laminar flow than it is a, right. a discrete entity. Right. So they know there's a, they know there's a self, uh, but they figure, what, what Americans make such a big deal about it? <laughs> They don't deny it exists. They just wonder why we're obsessed with it. 
Yeah, I mean that that is that does tend to characterize the movement of these guys. They're, they're deep privileging themselves, but there is, you know, uh, and I think there is a new epoch that's coming about that's splintering off from postmodernism that is characteristic of a sort of second or even a third generation of postmodern thinkers, uh, not all of whom are French, although one, Alain Badiou, is, uh, but also Slavoj Žižek, who is Slovenian, and he's you know, one of the big stars of this movement of retrieving the self. Both, both of those two thinkers and their friends, both of them uh, try to retrieve the self and rebuild it anew. Badiou has a whole book about it, The Theory of the Subject, um, The Theory of the Self. And so I, I see a kind of new epoch emerging with them, an epoch that could be called hyper-modernity maybe or ultra-modernity. I'm, I'm not sure what we – I don't think a, a term has been officially agreed upon for it yet, but I, there is a new epoch emerging. And it's also an epoch in which there's a certain retrieval of metaphysics too, in which it's okay now if we want to go back to uh, grand meta-narratives to use them. And the German philosopher Peter Sloterdijk does this all the time in the opening of his book on uh, the world interior of capital. He says, no, I think that the much-touted death of the great meta-narrative uh, is something that isn't true. Meta-narratives are useful. They're something that can be retrieved and used so long as there's an awareness that they're not being used for colonialist agendas or agendas uh, to empower oneself and disempower some other group. As long as there's an awareness of that, um, it should be okay to use them. And so he freely does use them. And so I see Flatterdyke also, who's about the same age as these guys. They're, I think they're all in their late 60s, uh, Badiou and Zizek and Sloterdijk. I think they represent a, a new epoch uh, where the death of the self is no longer in place. The self is being retrieved, and the death of the master narrative and grand metaphysics is something that no longer applies either. Those things can be used and grabbed. Myths can be used. Um, I, I think there's a – and it's wonderful to see it opening back up this way, and I think that it is opening back up to larger intellectual horizons now. I see a much greater tolerance for these kinds of uh, metaphysical systems that we grew up uh, – or at least I did – grew up in an environment – and in an academic world that was regarded as, you know, these were embarrassing narratives. The narrative of a Joseph Campbell or a Daniel Borstein is embarrassing because it's full of all these naive assumptions about uh, the difference in power and capability between men and women, for instance. Uh, and this is very true of Jung. Recently, I went back to read some Carl Jung. And I was amazed. I hadn't read him in decades, and I was absolutely amazed by the chauvinism that's evident there, and the, and the racism. It's it's. I didn't, you know, as a as a young college student when I was re reading him, I wasn't aware of these things at all. But after having gone through the postmodern turn in my own thinking, and going back through him and reading him, it's just stunning that when you sit down and read him, that uh, he just has all of these incredible uh, prejudices and bigotry that is absolutely amazing that uh, he takes as just you know common coin for, for his time, which it probably was. Um, but a lot of that has been, I think, you know, there is something good to be said for postmodernism's nihilism, or at least its liquidation of some of these structures, is that we're a little more sensitive now to, to, to some of these issues of racism and condescending attitudes. To, you know, Young uses the term primitives in a very dismissive way. He, he means the term, a primitive is what he calls a savage, which is somebody who is uh, confused, uncivilized and disorganized in their thinking. Mm. And that's the thing that he sees as the other in his system to be eliminated at all costs with the creation of a civilized individual through the process of individuation, which he is the primary exemplar of as the great man. You know, oh. giving, coming, the Moses coming down from the mountain, giving to us uh, the, the, the tablets of what he's discovered in his 
institutional discipline of psychotherapy. It's right. absolutely amazing uh, going through these pro- uh, books and reading them with other lenses. Interesting. You use the term um, metaphysics. How how are you using it in this context? In this context, I'm simply talking about um, metaphysics in the broadest possible sense, and that includes not only academic metaphysics of the kind that characterize Husserl, let's say, or Descartes, um, which is or Kant, which is simply the metaphysics of where you're talking about a priori transcendent ideas like infinite space or the soul or God, freedom, immortality, those kinds. But also, I'm also including the metaphysics of the mythical and spiritual worlds as well. Those metaphysics are also, uh, I think, some even Deleuze already in A Thousand Plateaus has read Carlos Castaneda, which is a surprise as you're reading through it for him to talk enthusiastically and appreciatively about uh, Carlos Castaneda who is somebody that you would think would be totally anathema to his way of thinking, and generally would have been during that epoch, which I think we're moving out of now. Uh, but you can already see that as a kind of forerunner of the, of the tolerant attitude. Uh, but, you know, this is, I was reading uh, Rudolf Steiner, too. Uh, I was rereading him the other day, and I couldn't read him anymore because the racism that comes through in Steiner, which is not something I noticed uh, years ago when I read him back around the year 2000, um, it comes through with all these racial theories, and he, he really is condescending toward blacks and Muslims. He regards them as uh, the same way Jung regards Aboriginal peoples as, as primitives and savages. Um, so it, it's amazing how much you, you can see. I mean, World War II was not an accident. <laughs> it, it happened for a reason. There was a lot of bad thinking that led up to it, and so you can see that the critiques of metaphysical narratives that supported colonialist agendas there's something to it. I mean, uh, yeah, there's a lot of it uh, that gets annoying uh, when, when it becomes this kind of tub-thumping, group-based tub-thumping for my special interest group. But there is also a certain degree of usefulness that it, it did clear away a lot of the dreck from the thought systems of, of the West. Right. You know, it. The um, I did a book on, uh, wrote a book on the architect Louis Kahn, it's called Between Silence and Light, Spirit and the Architecture of Louis Icahn. And uh, he has a very powerful—my book, the book I wrote is about his spiritual philosophy, which is very developed and is equally important in his—what uh, he has to contribute as his buildings. And <clears throat> I, uh, the book is very respected. It's been in print for— uh, thirty plus years, but uh, and you know most architects in the world know my book and have my book, but it's never been reviewed. There are no other books about Khan's spiritual philosophy. I was able to write this book because I had been a very strong student of the Tao Te Ching uh, of. Uh, you know, of Joseph Campbell and of Buddhism. So that when Khan talked about certain things, everybody said, oh, poetic, you know, what does this building want to be? Uh, the realm of silence, the realm of light. Well, Khan right. had very specific meanings for those things, and I was able to figure them out because of my background in a, these other disciplines, and then my book explains what he's talking about. So if he says... Uh, client comes in and we need a school so great you know he sits around with the people in his office and he says well a school what does a school want to be what does this building want to be 
Well, there's a lot of implications there. You know, first of all, how can a building want anything? <laughs> and second right. of all, we haven't designed it yet, so it doesn't even exist. Well, what Khan means is that it, you know, in the platonic sense, it exists in an ideal realm before we bring it into manifestation. And that's a realm he uses the term for silence. And uh, this is very much like in Taoism, uh, Lao Tzu speaking of um, ever desiring, one can see the manifestations, ever desireless, one can see the mystery. And then both Khan and Lao Tzu say there are these two different realms, but in fact, there are not two. Uh, the two only come about due to difference in perspective of our thinking. Well, what I just described, you can't talk about in academia. I just Everything I just said right. was gibberish in contemporary academia. Now, I'm not going to argue that these other realms exist or don't exist, but I will argue that's what Louis Kahn, uh, second most important American architect after Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, was talking about. And in fact, Frank Lloyd Wright talks about the exact same thing. Uh, and so all, the, all of their, you know, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright's writing is reproduced and there are books and there, you know, there'll be a reader that'll have his important essays and his books remain in print, but no one talks about them because in academia, you're not allowed to talk about this stuff. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I mean, I think that may be changing. I get the impression that, the, that there may be a change, although uh, it's only in certain quarters, perhaps, at this point. It's certainly changing amongst the thinkers, the, the philosophers. Mm. Maybe amongst uh, academics, it'll take a little while. They, they tend to be slow to catch up. After all, they, you know, they, they didn't really become crazy about the French until the 1980s, uh, thereabouts, and, and that's when it really deconstruction and Derrida began to become very popular in the American university. Whereas in Europe, it was already very well known. I think that uh, academics tend to be a little bit slow to catch up with the continental theoreticians. And so maybe it's something that's more true right now of the, of Europe and specifically the, the continental traditions in Europe, such as uh, Zizek and Badiou represent. So uh, we're not going to get through everybody. We have about uh, 15 minutes to go, but you just mentioned, uh, Derrida and deconstruction. So tell yes. us what that is. And everybody uses the term, oh, I'm going to deconstruct that. And uh, but what does deconstruction <laughs> yeah. actually mean? Yeah, well, what it actually means, uh, first of all, the term comes from Heidegger's destruction, uh, or abbau. It's translated as destruction, not deconstruction, but destruction. And it means when he's going to perform a destruction on an idea, what he's going to do is he's going to clear away uh, all the cliches and the bad ideas uh, that have gotten in the way, and he's specifically thinking about being. He wants to do an archaeology of being and clear away all the bad ideas that have accumulated around being so he can find the original, authentic, inner idea of being. And so by performing a destruction, he means it in that sense. So Derrida has picked up this method uh, from uh, Heidegger, uh, but deconstruction is a, is a bit different. Now, to understand deconstruction, you have to think a moment about some of the metaphysical ideas of Derrida, especially that he presupposes. I mean, you can't understand Derrida without Heidegger. There's just no way around it. Um, Heidegger had characterized the West as producing what he calls the metaphysical age, and that's the age that extends from Plato, which is not the pre-Socratics, but from Plato down to Husserl, his great teacher, whom he rebelled against. And that's the metaphysical age, and then Derrida.
calls this age the logocentric age. This is the age in which um, logos, the idea of the logos, is the ultimate sort of metaphysical ruling principle that anchors truth. And so all ideas of truth refer in some way to the logos. So we get all these ologies during this age. And this is the age in which the metaphysics of presence predominates, in which, uh, let's say, for instance, uh, speech is privileged over writing because speech is closer to the metaphysics of presence, that is to say, of, of the originating ground. When I speak something, I am the originating ground of what I'm saying. And so Whereas writing is seen as exterior to that. Writing is supplemental. Writing is, is fallen. Um, okay, so you can begin to see a way in which Derrida is characterizing a binary opposition there. And this is the thing for Derrida, is that metaphysical systems are systems that generate binary oppositions. And in that case, uh, there's the opposition during the logocentric age, which is also phonocentric because it privileges the voice. Um, the opposition there between speech and writing. So that's an opposition, and of the two, whenever uh, metaphysics generates an opposition, one of the two is privileged over the other, invariably. Uh, you could say that in Carl Jung, for instance, um, he uh, associates men with thinking and women with feeling, and it's clear that of the two, he privileges thinking. Uh, thinking is the thing for him that is that makes men great and women inferior. That's Jung, and that's how, uh, that's how Derrida, I think, would characterize him if he was going to do a deconstruction on him. So you set up an opposition. What happens with deconstruction, and uh, this is first worked out really in his book of Grammatology, which came out in 1967, um, is that he'll characterize, let's say, uh, Saussure's course of general linguistics in which uh, Saussure sets up this opposition between speech and writing, and speech, he says, is superior uh, because he's thinking of the oral tradition, and writing is something that tends to corrupt uh, and threaten the oral tradition. And so writing is secondary to speech. But what Derrida does is he'll go into this opposition, and he'll say that it's not a true opposition. When you look more closely at it, you'll find that the one term is contained in the other and vice versa, and therefore the opposition doesn't hold, and therefore it can't uphold uh, a truth system. So he'll say that... Uh, Let's say that writing, Saussure himself says that writing is an image of speech, but he also is very anxious to maintain that uh, the signifier's relationship in writing is arbitrary. It's to the, the, the voice. The, the signifier's relationship to the signified is, is arbitrary. And therefore also writing's relationship, the graphemes of writing, is therefore also arbitrary in its relationship to the phonemes of speech. Um, but it can't very well be arbitrary, Derrida says, if it's the case that writing is an image of speech. So it has to represent something. So that's point number one. So number two is that he says speech, after all, is a form of writing, as a form of what he calls archie writing, which has to do with the spacing that occurs between words that allows the differences between words to generate meaning. And that's common to both writing and speech. So speech contains implicit within it a kind of writing. And so therefore, the opposition is a false one. And if the opposition is false, then it no longer holds, and the whole system collapses into the play of what Derrida calls uh, uh, the play of signification. And the, by the play of he invents this term called différence. And what différence means, and you'll note that the word is indistinguishable from the, the French word for difference, différence. The only difference between them is that uh, the one word is spelled E-N-C-E, and the term différence is spelled A-N-C-E. But see, the ear can't hear that. 
but mm. which is Derrida's way of privileging writing. Only the eye can tell the difference between those two words by looking at the actual uh, grapheme, looking at the actual word itself. And so he's trying to privilege writing a bit there, trying to restore a, a certain place to it. But this term difference is a play of signification, which is simply what you're doing is you're digging into the unconscious of language. Words as far as he's concerned, have an unconscious that's filled with what he calls traces. And so uh, a trace cloud is a meaning cloud, an etymological meaning cloud, like the words in Finnegan's Wake, for instance, an etymological meaning cloud that's packed with all these other meanings, as well as the history of the meanings that that word meant. But the logocentric tradition of the West has tended to repress all these other signifiers, all these other meanings, and collapse the word just down to one official or maybe two maybe a couple at most official meanings, while ignoring all these other trace words inside them. And so this is what Heidegger, he said Heidegger was doing when he changed the spelling of being. For instance, being, B-E-I-N-G, Heidegger changes it to B-E-Y-N-G, which is an old archaic spelling of being, to mean something different from what is normally meant by the word being. He wants it to, ha to resonate with these earlier ideas of being as something that's an event, something that happens, uh, something that takes place and not just being as something that uh, means to be there, as, as though something were just there. So that's what deconstruction is. It's a way, you're not just dismantling a system in order to collapse it and render it uh, null and void. What you're actually doing is you're trying to dig out older meanings. That was the original idea of Heidegger's destruction, after all, anyway, wasn't it? To go back, dig into the word, or the idea, or the concept, or the signifier, and find these older meanings that are still inherent within them. But you have to perform an analysis in order to get down in there and pull out these tr meaning traces, what Derrida calls traces, trace clouds, that, uh, that come out. And is, so that's deconstruction in a nutshell. That's really what it is. Is it fair to say uh, we could describe deconstruction as a difficult method to uh, not overcome but deal with the tendency to see things in duality. I'm sorry, once again, I, I missed the question. Um, could we say that deconstruction is an approach to deal with our tendency of seeing things in duality? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Because as far as Derrida is concerned, uh, metaphysics and the history of Western metaphysics has derived its entire legitimacy from uh, setting up dualities. And that's where all the legitimacy comes from, in which one of, the, one of the terms is always privileged over the other. And that's what he's trying to, by deprivileging the term that's privileged, as in the case of speech versus writing, where speech is privileged and writing is secondary because it's exterior, it's dead, it's a thing that's, that's later than voice and it exists out in space, is like a dead thing. Uh, and so he wants to try to restore to writing a certain degree of privilege that he sees uh, the Western tradition as deprivileging. Um, Hegel sees writing, for instance, as something that is archaic, and he associates it with the tomb and something that is not as authentically present as speech is, as the voice is. Um, so that's, uh, yeah, I, I think there is truth to that. Great. So let's see if we can try one more. And our listeners who are into this stuff might have uh, heard of Deleuze. So let's see if we can describe what uh, uh, Deleuze brings to this. Yes, uh, Gilles Deleuze is uh, probably the next great philosopher. In my opinion, he's the best of these guys. I, I, he's my favorite. But um, his book, A Thousand Plateaus, was written with Felix Guattari, who was a psychoanalyst. Uh, Deleuze was a philosopher. 
Um, and Deleuze came out of the background in sciences. He really is connected with uh, the whole movement of chaos and catastrophe theory that's centered around Rene Tom's structural stability and morphogenesis. He represents the philosophical importation of those ideas into philosophy. So he's very much concerned with the same stuff that is later popularized in the late 90s as uh, James Clark's, uh, you know, chaos theory and catastrophism and all of that stuff. Um, this is the French version of it, and he brings it in. His first great book, Difference in Repetition, is a vast theory of morphogenesis. He sees forms emerging in the world out of the virtual, and the virtual is the realm of ideas, and he says that ideas are bundles of differential relations that are, um, they become associated with intensivities, and intensivities are things like rate of change of flow, temperature, speed, uh, these very abstract things that nevertheless underlie the physical world. And then the physical world is built up out of what he calls extensivities. And so extensivities are some of the concrete phenomena of the physical world that we normally see as really out there. This sounds somewhat familiar. It sounds almost German, with the exception that I think with Deleuze, there's not uh, any recognition of the phenomenological tradition where you're always taking, you're always saying there's a human subject that's creating all of this. That's not the case for Deleuze and Guattari, or for Deleuze here in Difference in Repetition, which he wrote by himself. Um, the world really is the way it appears to be, and all of these morphogenetic processes are happening all the time. Forms are constantly being generated by the inherent creativity of nature, at both at the material level and the organic level, and so forth. And so then... Um, these ideas are taken and run with by Deleuze and Guattari together as a team in A Thousand Plateaus, which I think is the, the best of their books, in which they say that the world is basically composed of two different uh, axes. You have the sort of horizontal axis, if you visualize it in your mind this way, of what they call the plane of consistency. And it means consistency of multiplicities. And a multiplicity is simply an aggregate. It, it's their basic unit. Instead of saying atoms, they say multiplicities. And so it's the plane of consistency of multiplicities, and it's a virtual realm that's not – you can't see it. I think artists make it visible. I think you can see it in, in the work of an artist like Dolly, let's say. Uh, but it's invisible. It's the realm of virtuality uh, where all the signifiers and entities and beings are destratified. They exist in a state of pure potentiality. And governing it is what is called bodies without organs. And bodies without organs are simply virtual flows. They're morphogenetic fields. They're the a priori structuring fields that make all of this happen on the x-axis, which is, you can think of it vertically as what they call the plane of organization. So the plane of organization is organized into strata, and there are three main strata, the physico-chemical strata, then the organic strata, and then on top of that, the anthropomorphic strata uh, of the human world. And um, everything is composed within these strata. Everything is bound and locked into place. All the signifiers and potentialities and ideas on the plane of consistency are locked into place on these strata. And um, everything is composed of two different kinds of assemblages, what he calls what they call machinic assemblages. And a machinic assemblage is simply uh, the way in which one entity or signifier connects with another. The orchid and the wasp, for instance, form an assemblage together when the orchid tries to imitate the body of the female wasp to, attra to attract the male wasp to fertilize it. That's an assemblage. That's uh, a type of assemblage that is created at a, at a rhizomatic level. Um, so, and then there are assemblages of enunciation, enunciation. So these are these have to do with the human world of 
what they call the five different sign regimes. Every sign regime has its own sort of internal structure. And this gets into with the five different sign regimes of the, the world of human history. Uh, they basically break it down into these five regimes. Uh, it's very similar to Foucault's epochs, his, his epistemes. Each one has its own internal structure that's consistent and generates its own possibilities. That's the human world on the anthropomorphic stratum. But what can happen is that uh, individuals or entities or signifiers can be stratified. They can break loose from their bondage in the strata and trace what they call a line of flight out onto the plane of consistency where they can then plug into any of the other strata, especially the human world is very good at doing this. And when they plug into the other strata, <clears throat> what they do, what they end up doing is forming assemblages, surprising assemblages, artistic assemblages, and so forth. The shaman uh, unplugs from the human stratum and plugs into the animal stratum to create a becoming animal. So there's an assemblage there where the shaman is in a becoming wolf mode or a becoming eagle mode. And so those are assemblages that are created at that level. Um, and I would say that's, that's like the briefest nutshell version of D&G that you're going to get. <laughs> okay. There's a lot in there going on, uh, but, and I've gone through, I've really compressed it down there. But those are the main ideas of, of those two thinkers. So listen, John, I th- we're going to have to wrap up, so we're going to have to do this again in, in a part two because we have a lot more to get to. So, yes. um, um, John, anything you want to say to wrap up? Uh, no, I think we, that was actually pretty thorough for the short time that right. we had to, to, to do it. In. Yeah. Um, that was great. So I enjoyed that I'm, a lot. Yeah, we'll, I hope we'll, your listeners uh, get something out of this. Yeah, we'll definitely do a part two. And uh, just uh, to remind everyone, we've been talking with John David Ebert, E-B-E-R-T. And let's go down the list. Go to Amazon and put in John David Ebert. You'll find a dozen books. Uh, all of them are worthwhile. Dead Celebrities is... 20 books, actually. Okay. <laughs> 20 wow. of them by now. <laughs> wow. And then there's, if you're into f- any classic films, go to uh, look at the uh, uh, name of the film, like Star Wars Scene by Scene. There's a whole series of those. Then go to Cultural Discourse for some of his essays. And go to YouTube. Uh, for some of his talks, and go to Google Play for um, much more in-depth, detailed lectures on everything you've, um, everything we've been saying, uh, everything we've been saying on this uh, broadcast. So, John, thank you for being with us. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me on, John. Wrapping up. <laughs>